Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We remember the imagery of uh, the section of Hosea that we're in right now that uh, Hosea and the Lord introduced in chapter 4, and that is a setting of a courtroom and really what we might call a, a divorce court in our culture in which God the Father, who is represented as the husband of his wife Israel in the Old Testament, uh, uh, covenanted together the vows uh, that form the basis of that union being the law of Moses and each one's commitment to be faithful to those vows. And here is the nation of Israel violating those vows every single way that could be imaginable. And so God is establishing His, uh, His innocence in the uh, uh, disillusion of the, uh, of the marriage and uh, that the entire weight for the failure of the marriage lies uh, completely upon the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel itself. And the interesting thing about this is, of course, he lays out a um, watertight case. I mean, any judge that would be handling a situation like that would uh, clearly uh, understand that she is entirely at, the fault, at fault for the breaking of this relationship. But God doesn't bring Israel uh, before uh, this kind of court before creation and him, Himself solely to identify the sins of uh, His wife or the, the sins of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. He does that but the long-term view of it is so that when he does not ultimately and finally divorce her, separate himself totally, wash his hands completely of the northern kingdom of Israel, in the light of her guilt, in the light of her spiritual unfaithfulness and violation of the vows, that when they finally do return to this relationship later in their history, they will marvel at the greatness of God's grace and His commitment to the marriage, to the relationship, despite their many failures, and uh, be left really for the rest of their history to be in awe of the grace of God that was extended to them. So the book of Hosea is one of the strongest um, pictures and um, uh, speaking against the sins of the northern kingdom of Israel, but it isn't the sole message of the book of Hosea. The, the greatest message, that all sets the plate for the great message, and that is the love of God and the grace of God who dealt with and chastened them for their sin, but never ceased to love uh, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and, uh, and to abandon his commitment to her. And I think all of us as Christians, uh, whether to whatever degree or whatever length of time, uh, maybe not as graphically the uh, you know, failure in our Christian life as the northern kingdom of Israel was or for the sheer length of time that they were, but 
all of us knows what it is to have a relationship with God in which God could just at some point in time throw His hands up and say, I'm done. That's all I'm going to put up with here in this relationship and walk away. And the fact that He doesn't do that humbles us and it makes us love Him uh, even more and ultimately the desire to obey His Word and to please Him and to bless Him in a greater measure. In chapter 8, as we come to this place, God is uh, speaking to the kingdom now of the uh, consequences that are going to occur because of their sin, and specifically uh, an invasion by the world-ruling empire at the time of Syria who would invade them and conquer them, and he's letting them know that that invasion, that judgment, is very, very close. And so he says, set the trumpet to your mouth, and he shall come like an eagle, speaking of Assyria, and the swiftness with which uh, Assyria would come and take them against the house uh, of the Lord. And so here's this warning of this invading army. It will come uh, very, very swiftly. And, uh, and yet... Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel is not paying any heed at all to um, uh, Hosea. He seems kind of hysterical to them, these warnings and all of this that he's giving. He's, he's uh, over the top related to all of it, and yet the judgment would come, and it would come very quickly. And uh, one of the things is we look at a passage like this and apply it then to our world and specifically apply it to uh, our nation it isn't that we would look and say, you know, isn't our nation terrible or be unpatriotic in doing something like that, but that we as Christians would recognize there's nothing new under the sun. And the same tendencies in the world or in a nation will have the same end all the way uh, through history. And the fact of the matter is, is that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. And so often you can look at the world and the nation in which we live and you say, how in the world could uh, something swiftly come in the form of judgment that would humble uh, a nation as powerful and as strong and the juggernaut that it is, and yet uh, God is able to do that and, and to humble in an instant. And so here would come this invasion. It was at the uh, right at the door. And he said, because, and here's the reason for the judgment, they have transgressed my covenant, rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected uh, the good. The enemy will pursue him. So God says at the time in which Assyria invades the northern kingdom of Israel and overthrows them, then the children of Israel will then cry out to God and say, My God, we know you. And they'll claim to have this relationship uh, uh, with God and, um, and God deliver us and, and uh, calling out for uh, His deliverance. But the reality was that Israel had rejected uh, good. It had rejected God for a very, very long time and their actions denied their words. And one of the problems uh, with the hypocrite or with the actor is that they uh, never ultimately deceive the Lord. Uh, religious hypocrisy, a, uh, hypocrisy in the life of a Christian. 
And, and so we think I can give God all of these words that we think uh, He is longing for out of our lives and then live a life entirely different from Him and the words will satisfy Him. And, and we convince ourselves that this kind of uh, hypocrisy is somehow fooling God as if God could ever be fooled. The only person who is ever fooled in that kind of a situation uh, is the hypocrite. God is never fooled. Here is an entire nation that is going to be surprised uh, at, at the fact that their words directed toward God, minus a life that was consistent with those words, was somehow acceptable uh, uh, to uh, God. And that's what uh, happened ultimately to them. They actually believed that they knew God despite uh, the uh, ungodly life that they were living. It certainly reminds us of Matthew chapter 27 as, uh, ch Matthew chapter 7 as Jesus is closing the Sermon on the Mount and he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I can know that I am deceived as a child of, uh, of God and self-deceived when I'm living a life of rebellion to his word and, uh, and with my mouth calling him Lord and calling him uh, God and saying that I know Him. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said, further, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 3, by, now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. That's the key to not becoming self-deceived in all of this. He who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By, uh, by this we know that we are in him. And so this uh, terrible, terrible scene of, of God's judgment coming upon them and them discovering at the same moment that they had only fooled themselves and not God at all uh, in their uh, lip service but failure to live the life that God had called them to. And they set up kings, God said, but not by me, not the kings that I chose. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. And so the leaders that they set up uh, in, uh, in, in their um, rejection of God here in the northern kingdom. They denied God the right to ordain who He wanted to be as the king. And why would they do that? Because they didn't want a godly king to lead them. Because a godly king would bring an end to all of the sin and the wickedness that they loved so much and they loved to uh, practice. And the problem with that, again, as we saw last week or the last time, is that this is a very, very dangerous world uh, that we live in. And, and as a nation plays with sin, as we do, and is unwilling to elect uh, godly men and women, unwilling to elect uh, the people that God wants elected within 
uh, within that nation, uh, then they're going to end up with the kind of leadership, uh, they'll be without the kind of leadership they need when a real crisis uh, occurs. And so it should be an alarming thing to us in the nation in which we live that uh, in all probability, I think anybody could look at it and say, no one who is a serious Christian could ever win at this point in time, barring a revival, win a national election in this country. Uh, because uh, why? Because nobody wants to give up their sin. Nobody wants to give up their idolatry. No one wants to run the risk of electing a man or a woman that would be a threat to that. And the fact that Christians are in that cat kind of category within our country speaks to the level of addiction to sin that occurs within our, uh, occurs within our, our culture and how steadfastly uh, our populace will um, stand against any kind of moral or spiritual revival that might come from a leader that uh, God would choose and uh, put into place. And it always bodes well. It boded very uh, poorly. It, it boded very poorly for uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. It bodes uh, poorly for any nation in the world today because it speaks to the fact that now this is a nation that generally loves its sin more than anything else uh, in life and will not stand for that being threatened uh, at all. And so now you lose that element of righteousness in terms of leaders, and then the problems become even worse, and so the cycle continues until ultimately there's judgment, as was the case with the northern kingdom of Israel. And so they rejected God's leaders that He wanted them to have, and then from their silver and gold they made idols for themselves that they uh, might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria, and, uh, and the worship in the northern kingdom there in, in, in Israel constituted uh, the worship of two gigantic calves that they had created, but one in Dan uh, and, and one in Bethel. And so uh, God says, your calf is rejected. My anger is aroused against them. How long shall they attain to innocence uh, in their idolatry? For from Israel uh, is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God. If you can make it, it's not God. There are two categories of, of some things in, in all of uh, existence. There is the Creator, and then there's the creation. And there's nothing in between. And so anything we can make, by virtue of the fact that we can make it, is something that is less than us. So why would we worship something that is less than us? Not only in terms of the creating of an image, but any kind of philosophy or religion that we want to add to that image. It's still a man-made thing, and it's less than man uh, by virtue of that. And so Paul speaks in the book of Romans of the folly of worshiping the creation rather than the Creator who is to be blessed forevermore. And so a workman made it, and it is not God. That is just that's a wonderful line right there. Uh, but the calf of Samaria uh, shall be broken into pieces. Now there's another lesson. Never worship a God that can be broken in pieces. Um, Never worship a God 
that cannot protect itself from being broken in pieces. And again, the folly of worshiping anyone other than the God who is the creator and the maker of the heavens and the earth, uh, the, the God uh, of, of the Bible. And then he declares that they sow, to the, uh, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up, and he gives the reason why. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone uh, by itself. So what he's talking about here is the northern kingdom of Israel became so immoral and so filled with idolatry and sin when they began to bear the consequences of those sins, which were severe, rather than repenting of their sin and recognizing we are in this pinch that we're in because of our sin, let's turn back to God, they refused to do it. But again, if God is your problem, only God is your solution. But what they did as a nation is, rather than repent, so desperate not to do it, they decided that they would strengthen the decay of the power of their nation by establishing alliances with the nations around them to try and uh, fill in the plug, plug in the holes related to uh, the collapse of their culture that was going on all around them. And they went to Assyria to do that, like a wild donkey alone uh, uh, by itself. A donkey's a very stubborn animal. Uh, they were doing in this uh, not out of some kind of uh, strategic sense of a noble thing of maybe it'd be good to be a part of NATO or something like this, but they just, it was, we don't want to give up our sin. We're paying a terrible price for that. What can we do short of giving up our sin? Let's make some alliances with the nations around us. And so in their rebellion against God, their stubbornness, that's what they did. And Ephraim has hired lovers. They went to Assyria. Both Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel were going to Assyria, trying to offer Assyria uh, the most money and the most wealth to come and, and be in alliance uh, with them, one against the other. And yes, uh, verse 10, though they have hired among the nations these alliances, now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. And the king of princes refers to the king of Assyria. And so when he, he begins this whole thought there in verse 7 about sowing the wind, reaping the world, when the stalk that has no bud, it will never produce meal. In other words, God is saying all these attempts to solve the problems that could only be solved between them and God, by trying to solve these uh, with these alliances, it was completely futile. Uh, it, would, it would not protect them uh, from uh, the judgment that God would bring. And the interesting thing concerning the northern kingdom of Israel is they fought with Judah to try and hire Assyria as a, a protector from them, and their increasing weakness was that ultimately Assyria would be the one that would conquer them. Because here you have a nation, that it, it, the northern kingdom of Israel, becoming weaker and weaker and weaker because of its uh, 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 immoral foundation. 
And so it seeks to have an alliance with Assyria. Assyria looks at it and says, why are they trying to have an alliance with me? Except that they're weak and they're vulnerable. And in a fallen world, you don't want to show weakness and vulnerability uh, to an enemy. And so what you try... With the in, in endeavoring to try and get an ally related to this thing, all they did is they left Assyria licking their chops for when would be the opportunity to conquer the northern uh, kingdom. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him uh, altars uh, for sinning. And so in the law of Moses, the sacrifices were to be offered uh, at one altar, only one altar in all of the world. And that altar was located in the area, of, uh, to be located in the area of the temple in Jerusalem. And they disregarded that in violation of the law of Moses and decided they could set up altars everywhere they wanted. All of it was a, a graphic violation, uh, again, of the covenant, the agreement with God. And so God said uh, about this, I have written for him the great things of my law. But they considered it a strange thing. They no longer knew the Word of God. The Word of God was a strange thing uh, to them for the sacrifices of my offering. They sacrifice flesh uh, and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. So all of these sacrifices they were offering to God on all of these altars that they had made up as a part of their own religious system, God says, I want you to know it has no meaning for me. I, it is no different than uh, seeing steaks in the meat section of a Safeway or a Save Mart. Uh, it's just raw meat. That, it's just meat that you're eating. It has no significance because all of it's being done in violation of my, uh, my word. And uh, now he will remember uh, their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt, that is bondage. When the northern kingdom of Israel was ultimately conquered by the Assyrians, many were killed. Uh, most were then taken into captivity uh, to Assyria, but a significant number of, uh, of Jews fled then uh, into Egypt for uh, sanctuary. And here they are fleeing back into uh, the place of their former bondage again because of their idolatry and not even realizing uh, the folly and the significance of it. For Israel has forgotten his maker, and that's, uh, that's at the core uh, of, uh, of their problem. Uh, and, and has built temples. Judah has also multiplied fortified cities. So in the wickedness of the, that hour in human history, the dangerousness of the world at that time, what Israel, uh, northern king of Israel was depending upon for her defense was her idols and her idolatry. The southern kingdom of Judah was depending upon their military and military fortifications. Both of those things will ultimately fail them as one goes into captivity to the Assyrians, the other ultimately to the Babylonians. And God says as much, but I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour his uh, palaces. For Israel has forgotten uh, his maker. And, it, and God is the maker of every single human being. He was also the maker of the nation of Israel. They wouldn't have existed without Him. 
but He's the maker of every single one of us in uh, this room. Uh, God made, every, uh, made Adam and Eve in His image. He made us, and He made us in His image. And Adam and Eve have fallen from uh, that excellence, and the, the, we, we bear the consequences of that fall uh, as well. But the point that God is making is stop and think about it. I mean, it's like uh, they, they have this uh, thing on, um, I don't know what the website is, I, I get sent it every so often, where they take these kind of deep theological things and they put it to a cartoon. And, uh, and, and they're really just outstanding. Uh, and, uh, of course, the reason I don't want to know any more about them is, is I, um, I see the end of, of my calling uh, in, um, in all of it. It, it, it. People are going to say, well, I'm not going to go there. I, I, I got cartoons right here that will uh, <laughs> tell me the same thing in a way that anybody can understand it. So I'm, I live in fear uh, in, in our current uh, religious culture. But, but the point that he's making is, who made you? Who is your maker? And worship him. Don't worship what you can make, which is what, which is what they were doing. And that, of course, applies to the materialism and, and power and wealth and prestige and all of these kind of things uh, in, in our culture uh, as well. In uh, chapter um, 9, do not rejoice, O Israel. Uh, with joy like other peoples. For you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. And this is where they would practice their idolatry, so often uh, um, involving sexual immorality. The threshing floor is where they would bring in all of the crops and then they would uh, uh, winnow the, the wheat and all. And then as uh, either, uh, either to, at the beginning of the planting season, they would engage in the idolatry there for a big harvest or after a harvest to thank their idols for providing them uh, with grain. The, th the threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them and the new uh, wine uh, shall uh, uh, fail uh, in her. And so uh, the Lord speaks of the fact that here I am, I'm, I am blessing you with all of these things, and yet you ascribe all of these blessings to these idols and other things that you worship uh, in your life. And, and so there's a sure cure for that, and God says, I'm going to dry up the blessings, and He can do it in a snap, and, and he, can, he can dry up the crops. He can, the quickest way you can uh, uh, get a people's attention is dry up their food supply. Uh, there, there is a quicker way, and that is to dry up their water supply, and that will get people's attention in a hurry because we can't live without water, and we cannot live without, uh, uh, without uh, food. And so he warns them uh, of his displeasure, and they shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things uh, in Assyria. They'll eat what they're served in Assyria, and not as much as they want, and, uh, and whatever they want, and uh, clean according to the law of Moses. They'll eat what the Assyrians feed them, and the Lord says uh, they shall not dwell in the Lord's land. And that's what they had forgotten. They had forgotten that the land of Israel belonged to God, and it still belonged to God. 
God gave it to them as a heritage. But they were just renting there. And if you're going to rent someplace or lease someplace and then trash the place, violate every condition of the lease agreement, you're going to get evicted. You're going to get evicted on an on a, a earthly level, and God is going to evict them as well. So he says, I'm not going to let you be comfortable and enjoy all of my blessings in this incredible land that I've given you so that you can continue your, uh, your idolatry. And, and uh, he said, uh, and, and it's the Lord's land. He dwelt there. He dwells everywhere, but he dwelt there. And he says, I'm not going to share it with you anymore. And I'm, I'm going to send you away until you can become a good tenant, so to speak, and then I can bring you back in here. And they shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to Him. It shall be like a bread of mourners to them. All who eat shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their own life, and it uh, shall not come into the house uh, of of the Lord. So speaking of this exile that was going to occur. And then uh, in verse 5, uh, what will you do in the appointed day in the day of the feast of the Lord? In other words, the Lord is saying, when all of this happens, uh, 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 where you're going to uh, face the severest consequences related to this and in going to Assyria is it will end all of these holy days and the practice of them. Uh, in the land of Israel that I have given to you and the practice of these feasts and festivals outlined in the law of Moses. So if you don't appreciate them, I'll take them away for a time until you do come to uh, appreciate uh, them. And no parent that's raised a child uh, doesn't understand how uh, all of, uh, of that uh, that works. So all of that would be brought to an end with that captivity, for indeed they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their uh, valuables of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. And so uh, they will be destroyed, uh, all of their idols will be destroyed, and then the land will uh, become depopulated and it will uh, just become uh, ultimately a uh, overgrown uh, and, uh, and a ruin. And the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows uh, the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man uh, is insane uh, because of the greatness of your iniquity and, uh, and great uh, enmity. So, um, again, speaking of raising children, uh, there is a, probably in raising any child, there may be exceptions. God bless you if you're an exception to that. But there isn't a point uh, that in parents raising the average child where they aren't tempted to say to the child, um, you know, uh, 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 like here, uh, Israel knows. You're so smart, why am I the parent? You know everything. And what's the old joke, you know? I mean, it make them... Uh, the president of something while they still know everything and then find out that, uh, how little that they, they do know. But that's, the, that's what God says to them. You, you, you can't be told anything. You can't be taught anything because you think that you know everything. And, and that's, that, that's the, the arrogance and the pride uh, that, they, uh, that they found themselves in 
and uh, they knew everything, and they knew everything so well they didn't even need to listen to God. And, uh, and then their assessment of the prophet is that the prophet is a fool and the spiritual man uh, is insane uh, because of the greatness of your iniquity and uh, great enmity. Now that, that's interesting where the assessment of the culture and a mark of, of uh, uh, the, the last days of a culture is when the population looks at the prophet and declares a prophet of God to be a fool and a spiritual man to be insane. Now, I don't know how, uh, what your experience is in this culture or in your family or among your peers and how highly they esteem your Christianity, your speaking for God, you being a spiritual man or woman, but I think most of us can recognize that as time is moving on within our culture, we're not highly esteemed for being Christians. We're viewed as fools and we're viewed as insane. And it is never ever a healthy sign in a culture that has moved that place. There are plenty of people who think I am crazy uh, because I'm a Christian. Crazier still to be a pastor in all of this and how things have flipped so quickly. Uh, related to this. But God is saying, you're so smart, you think that the prophets are, uh, uh, are fools and the spiritual man is insane, but in fact, you are the fool, you are the one who is insane, and uh, judgment is coming to clarify your vision. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fouler snare in all of his ways, enmity in the house of his God, in the house of his God, speaking of the land of Israel. In other words, God says concerning uh, the, the watchman or the spiritual man and the prophet, whatever the culture thinks of them, whatever Israel thinks of them, he says, they are, I'm for them, I'm with them. I realize they're the only ones that aren't fools and the only ones that are sane within the, uh, within, uh, uh, the insanity of the culture. And you hold on to that. All of us as Christians, if there isn't a, a turn from where we are, this is how we're presently being viewed by a large part of the population, and it will only uh, increase. And again, it isn't to ruin anybody's night but if we don't recognize that these are the marks of how it all unfolds, that what is happening in the world, there's nothing new under the sun, and we don't recognize it, then we won't recognize how far along in the progression our country uh, is in, and we'll just look at it and say, this is going to go on forever the way that it is, and we won't know how to conduct ourselves in the middle of that kind of an assessment of prophets and truly spiritual people. And to accept that I am willing to be esteemed that way in my family and by my peers and in this world and in this nation as long as God is able to say that He is my servant, she is my servant, though none go with me, still I, I, will, uh, I will follow. They are deeply corrupted. As in the days of Gibeah, he will remember uh, their iniquity. He will punish their sins. And so, uh, as deep as their, uh, as deep as was their corruption, God said His punishment would be just as deep to deliver them 
uh, of that corruption. When he talks about the days of Gibeah, he's talking about one of the darkest chapters in the history of the entire nation of Israel in the Old Testament, where there is the account of the Levite who has his concubine and is traveling from her father's house to their home, and they're going through pagan territory. They don't want to stop and spend the night where the pagans are. They want to make it to uh, a, a, a city uh, that is under the control of the Jews. They go to this particular city controlled by the tribe of Benjamin, and before the whole uh, thing unfolds, uh, the concubine is uh, taken out under the front steps of of the home, and she is gang-raped all night long by God's people, and then she is left uh, for dead, and then she dies in the morning. And you remember the Levite then cut her in pieces, twelve pieces, sent her pieces to the twelve tribes of Israel and say, look at where we have fallen. Let the shock of seeing a portion of her body come to you and wake you up to the shock of how deeply we have fallen spiritually as a people. And then the eleven tribes came then against the tribe of Benjamin, and the judgment that they brought against Benjamin was so great that the entire uh, tribe was uh, almost entirely wiped out. And God says as He looked at the northern kingdom of Israel that uh, their corruption was as deep in those, as in those days. But it didn't afflict just one tribe, but it afflicted uh, all of the, the ten tribes that constituted the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he begins to remind her of, uh, of, uh, of uh, 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 a little bit about their history lesson uh, in terms of their past. I found Israel, God said, like grapes in the wilderness. Now that's a good find. Uh, when you're in the wilderness to find grapes. I saw your fathers as the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, but they went to uh, Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame, and they shall become an abomination like the thing they loved. Baal Peor refers to that uh, account or that event in the Old Testament when the uh, uh, surrounding Balak uh, the king of Moab, and then Balaam, this odd prophet in the Old Testament, uh, who then told Balak how to bring uh, defeat upon the children of Israel, saying, in effect, you'll never defeat these people from without. You'll never do it. Nobody has, nobody can. But you can get uh, them to bring defeat upon themselves. Take these Moabite, your Moabitess women and have them go and make themselves sexually available to the men uh, of the children of Israel, and then as everybody's in a frenzy related to the sexual intensity, pull out their gods and call on them to worship gods. God will see that. He's a jealous God, and He will judge them in a way that you could never judge them. And that was, uh, and, and a great judgment did fall upon them, and He reminds them of how wonderful the beginning was, but their violation of the marriage vows has been uh, a long, a long one. As for Ephraim, uh, their glory, speaking of their population, is going to fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them, just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a ple 
pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer, speaking of Assyria. Tyre was a very, very pleasantly placed uh, city. And um, part of the, uh, the, the Phoenician kind of empire and uh, Israel, given the land that they were given, they were wonderfully situated as, uh, as, as well. God had planted them in a pleasant place, but He said Ephraim's going to bring his children out to the murder. Uh, in other words, He's going to throw Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, is going to throw all of their young men against that Assyrian military, and they're going to be ground uh, to pieces. Again, a failure to... Uh, repent. And then uh, Hosea, please, uh, to the Lord, uh, give them, O Lord, uh, what will you give? Give them miscarrying wombs and dry breasts. And what uh, Hosea is saying, don't let them, God, don't let them bear any more children to bring them into the horror of the future that is coming to them. And always that's the case where the, the sins of the parents do get visited upon the children in this regard. And the children so often bear the, high, the greatest price, uh, or they at least bear a significant price of the sin uh, of, of the parents. And that's what would happen. These children who were born to the, the, the idolaters, the adults that were supposed to be in charge and to be the adults within uh, the nation. Again, their young men would be thrown and in, in, in slaughtered by the uh, Assyrian army, and then the rest of the children would be taken captive and uh, into uh, Assyria. And so as Hosea, um, uh, uh, Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, they're not tracking with what he's saying. They won't repent. They don't care to repent. Hosea, as he's prophesying, he's tracking 100% with what God is saying. And then he says, please don't give them any more children that, who would then have to bear the consequences of the judgment that's going to come upon the land. And all of their uh, wickedness is as uh, Gilgal uh, for there, I hated them because uh, of, the, uh, of the evil of uh, their, uh, their deeds. Well, I might have had Gilgal and uh, Gibeah backwards here, and this may speak to that, the horror of that, that wickedness of, of the, the concubine. I will drive them, God says, from my house, that is the land, I will love them no more. And uh, all of their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. Uh, their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. My God shall cast them away because they did not obey Him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. And so we'll stop there tonight and, uh, and partake of the Lord's Supper.